Welcome to the podcast and I'm sure you're going to enjoy this one very much as I did. There was always so much more behind a person and I was fascinated to find out how Linda started out in England and ended up in Australia. She's probably best known for her annual events, um, the ABIA and the AHIA, which is a big industry event that everybody comes to and it's just an amazing event. It's the best fun you'll have all year with all the people that you know on socials. It's just a wonderful event. Linda is the, the founder of Hair Biz, Beauty Biz and now Barber Biz and probably by the time you listen to this, there'll be another biz. She's just incredible. Her journey to get to where she is today has just been one simple step after another. Well, that's Linda's view of it anyway. She's one generous and gorgeous girl and you'll absolutely love hearing her story. So sit back and enjoy. Welcome to Salon Conversations. It's Lisa Conway here and I'm your host. We often know the public face of those that we look up to in the hair and beauty space, but I'm really keen to find out the full story backstory. Why this industry? Where did it all start for them? Where are they now? And where do they expect to be next? In this podcast, I'll be looking behind the salon door because that's the salon conversation I'm really keen to have and I want to share it with you. So we have the pleasure to talk to Linda Woodhead today, which I'm very pleased to do because She's someone that I probably like you don't didn't really get to know. You just think, oh yeah, that's Linda. She's up there in that publishing tower, <laughs> but but didn't know much about the girl. And I knew that she was English because you've only got to speak to her and you know that she's English because she speaks correctly. And um, so I wanted to um, say welcome, Linda. Welcome to the Thank podcast. Thank you. Thanks. Happy to be here. Very good. It's nice to sit around and talk for a living, isn't it? I've oh, I know. Talked. I'm quite happy with this. I can talk underwater, so um, get, get, get strapped in. <laughs> get off track and go up to Grandma's farm. I'll go, hey, back here. So yeah. I wanted to, uh, I always think, how did this person get here? I'm always fascinated when I find out what did they do for a first job or how did they become um, in publishing and have all those wonderful events that you put on every year. So tell me, leaving school, what did you do when you left school? And you, you were in England, so tell us where. Um, when I left school, I, I, I wasn't one of those people that had like a vocation of, you know, I want to be this or I want to be that. And I've, I've talked to quite a few groups of sort of young people about, you know, because I think sometimes people get quite pressured to know what they want to be and I had no idea absolutely no idea my mum was a teacher my dad was an accountant my sister had gone into banking and I didn't have an idea at all um so one of my girlfriend's sisters um had started nursing and she was living I was in England I lived in Bristol she'd moved to Bath um and seemed to be having just a great social life <laughs> so I thought oh that looks good um I'll do that I'll be a nurse which was weird um so I got in and um because the school year in the UK is opposite to here because of the summer holidays um I finished school in the June July um got all my exams and I had about six months with nothing to do before the um nursing started so I wanted to get a job and get some money so I applied for a job in the newspaper and um I sold encyclopedias door to door (laughs) Really? Yeah. <laughs> that was my that was my first a book to find out the information. Like we would die today, wouldn't we, without Google? I know. And see, some people probably wouldn't even know what encyclopedia is that, that are listening to this. But anyway, they were a big set of books. Encyclopedia Britannica. I knew that. Yeah. So I worked for a company. We used to go to army bases to sell because um, the the good thing about going to the army properties um, were that most of the people that bought the books had to get them on finance because they cost a fortune. Um, and these people all lived in one place and every single door that you knocked on, they were, they, they were in the army. So in terms of finance, they could all get finance because they all had a job. Whereas if we went to normal places, you might get an old age pensioner and then you might get somebody young and then you might, so they'd sorted out and obviously realized that if we did this, then everyone so we went out in the afternoons we'd get appointments and then we'd go back in the um, evening and and I was really good at it (laughs) and I was selling like two three lots a night every time I went out and making a stupid amount of money at the age of 18. Did you really think it was a good product? 
Um, it was all right. I mean, the, the books were okay. I mean, it was still, they, they, you know, it was a bit like the, the old sort of Danos advertising because they, they got the encyclopedias, but then there was more. They got a bookcase and they got a junior thing and they probably got a set of knives or something. I don't know. But they, it was, um, you know, yeah, they were good. They were good books, but it was pro- probably way overpriced. But I, I did that and I probably thought after I did that, if I could sell... I mean, we used to get chased off the properties by the military police sometimes because you weren't supposed to be on there if, you know, but you'd bump into double glazing salesmen and cladding and oh. typical kind of door-to-door people. They were <laughs> so, like fishing in a the bucket. They thought, oh, get in there. And anybody who knew about it thought it was a good... Yeah. So it was fun. I mean, it was fun. And I earned quite a bit of money, which was really cool. But then I started my nursing and... Um, <laughs> the guy that owned the publishing company that had the books, um, him and I kind of started up a bit of a relationship. I was quite young. He'd moved to London. I then started my nursing in Bath. So I spent most of my time on trains going backwards and forwards to London um, to see him. And so I lasted with nursing for eight months and then thought, no, that's just not me. So I, um, moved to London, probably to the great dismay of my parents, (laughs) Um, and was the daughter who didn't do everything by the book, whereas my my sister probably did. Um, So I went to London and just needed a job, to be honest. And because I'd done sales, I managed to land myself a job um, for Reed Publishing, which is quite weird because I now deal with them obviously over here. and I, my first job was telesales. So I just used to sell advertising on the phone for classifieds, yeah. um, for trade and technical magazines that went to the Middle East, Far East and Africa. They were, um, I was in the health division. So they were trade business to business magazines. And I guess over the next four to five years, uh, my training there was incredible because I, I my manager um, was a very giving boss and taught me everything he knew. Um, and so I moved quite quickly from being just on the phone doing telesales to what was called display advertising. So the big advertising, my, my territory area included Southern part of the UK, um, Germany, France, part of Switzerland. So whereas over here, a sales rep would have sort of Queensland, which is probably bigger than my territory. My territory included sort of overseas countries. So for about four years, and I was in my early 20s, I traveled. I mean, I probably didn't appreciate it until I got here, to be honest, because Australia, even though it was my choice of where to live, um, it's obviously quite remote. And I don't think you appreciate the fact that you can drive for 10 hours and go through five countries in in Europe. So... Um, we're still in but, Queensland. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so you go, you're stuck. Yeah, but my my boss, I'd moved from, um, like I said, I was in the health kind of division. So we had Middle East Health, Far East Health, and Africa Health. All the magazines went to doctors and purchasing decision makers um, overseas. I I learned a lot about advertising, publishing. My boss used to pull me in and show me how to do budgets and and really kind of gave me a lot of management skills that I didn't really need for my job, but he was really open with, you know, he must've seen something in me, I guess, that I wanted to learn, um, which allowed me to sort of learn a lot of things. I, I remember one time I'd been over to Germany and I'd managed to get this, I'd managed to get Philips on board who we'd been trying to get for ages, a big advertiser, and they wanted to book, I don't know, 10 pages an issue or something. And when I got back all excited, he said to me, no, don't accept it. So I just saw all my commission kind of running out of the window and taught me that maybe it's not always so good to go for one big person and get lots of money from that one person. Rather, maybe go for a few smaller and get five or six and then still get them in, but not to rely on the one. Because if the one stops, you're kind of screwed. Whereas if one falls out of a small situation, so I have carried that through, to be honest, um, in what I do today with, um, you know, my sponsorships and advertising, we've been approached by big companies in the past to kind of almost do a bit of a takeover. And we've, we've said no, even though the money always looks good, long-term it's not necessarily good. The number one in business is risky anyway. One team member, one supplier, one, one, one is always it. Exactly, exactly. And I learned that sort of, as I said, from a, a young age, I guess. And then um, 
the company that I worked for got taken over. I'd been moved on to a brand new publication and um, the new business that came in through, through our division pretty much decided that if a magazine wasn't making a 20% profit contribution, it would close. And mine was new that I was working on. So I was offered redundancy, which wasn't a lot. I'd been there for like three or four years, but it was enough. And by that time, um, the, the man I'd kind of followed, I guess, to, to London, had um, we, he'd become my husband. We had already been to Australia on a holiday. He worked as an agent for a company in London um, who were based in Australia. So we came over and just absolutely loved it, fell in love with the country, and so decided that we would um, try and start a business migration. We bought into a business over here. Um, it took us 12 months. It was a huge process. I think it's even worse now, but we um, came over here um, on a holiday, went back, spent the time to sort of do everything we had to, and then within 12 months, we'd emigrated. So. For the 12 months after I was made redundant, I just worked for various different kind of publishing, but quite a few of the publishing houses I worked for were involved in the music industry. Okay. So um, when I arrived in Australia and we came straight to Queensland, it was a bit difficult because Queensland's not really the publishing kind of centre of the universe over here. Sydney is, and we weren't there. Um, I saw a job going for a... Um, uh, a manager of a publishing house that had um, they had their own presses we had newspapers we had a, uh, a news bureau and they had a street press music newspaper uh, which was called time off which was in um, Brisbane okay, yep. so I worked for them for a while got to know the music industry here um, and then stock market crash hit in I think it was 88 mm -hmm. and the guy that owned it had everything kind of just is all toppled he owned gold and god knows what and he was a bit kind of strange so um that all kind of went under and i worked for the receivers for a while and then um launched my own which was my first one which was probably around 19 uh, i'd say maybe 1990 i think um and launched uh uh it was a weekly street press newspaper called rave so uh, weekly was a nightmare. We just, <laughs> just, I remember we had a, um, I think it was Coke, it might have been Pepsi, but one of them brought out the very first energy drink called Jolt. And um, it was before all the energy drinks now, like Red Bull and everything. This is like 10, 15 years before all that happened. Yeah. Um, and they wanted to sponsor our gig guide, which we said, yes, they could. But the distributor I was dealing through said they didn't have any money. So they would instead give us, product so we would have like trucks with pallets of this stuff <laughs> up, um which was good because we used to work like on a tuesday we'd go in in the morning and we probably wouldn't leave until three four five o'clock on wednesday morning yeah we'd just keep us awake basically while we because bear in mind then i mean it's not that long ago but we were still in cut and paste there was no desktop publishing at that point we were literally waxing making um negatives like sticking everything down, cutting wow. it all to make columns. I know, but it's not that long ago. It's like we, I remember when we, we got our first desktop publishing system in, in my business. Um, and we all sat around and watched this guy give us a demonstration of how you could just on a computer <laughs> click it and suddenly seven columns would become three and the picture would just be fitted. And we were just all mind blown by and it's not, it's honestly not that long ago. Like it's kind of crazy when you, when you look at it. Um, we just expect it. We just take that for granted. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, the music industry was where I'd started while I had rave. Um, I had all my kids during that time too. So Kelly, my daughter was born first and then I had twin boys. Um, I used to take the twins into the office with me and just put them on the desks in those little $25 capsules that we used to hire from the Mains Road transport place. You get locked up for that now. You can't do anything. Yeah, I know. I know. Well, I just had my car seat fitted for my grandson. And when I looked at that, I was like, God, that's not like the $25 plastic bucket that I used to put my kids in with a strap around them. Um, oh, no, it's so, too complicated now. I don't know that I could be a parent now. I think I'd probably <laughs> have the council take it off me. <laughs> I know. Well, I think it took, I took, it took him about 10 minutes to fit it, but I think it took him about 20 minutes to explain to me how to put the kid in and out. <laughs> so, um, 
so yeah, no, I, I loved it. I loved that side of when I guess I first started when we had um, the music industry, it was really cool. It was a cool time for music too. Music is a passion of mine and um, you know, it was kind of when festivals were starting, we sponsored the first few big day outs. What It was just, it was a cool time. Um, Where did you come from there to hair, hair and beauty? That's well, funny enough. Hair, I know no, there's a similarity there. there. <laughs> when, I, when I had Rave, um, somebody, a, a lady who I, I didn't know her that well, but her husband and my husband have worked together in the UK a long time ago. And she approached me because she wanted to launch um, a hair magazine over here. She was a hairdresser, um, but she didn't know how to publish. So she came to me and said, can you help? So on license, we um, published um, the AHJ, so Australian Hairdressers Journal, probably for the first year or two, um, just kind of on a licensed consultancy basis. So we would look after the print, the production, um, works with the editors, all that kind of stuff, um, dealt with distribution. And so I guess because she just started, and at that time, I think the only one that was around in Australia was InStyle, I kind of had this bit of a crash course into the hair industry. Um, and she'd also launched awards. Um, I'd kind of helped her set all that up. Um, and so I, I kind of knew a little bit about it, but then she, uh, once she was ready, she took it back over and then got her own design people and everything else. Um, I stayed in publishing then. I um, launched a few other, uh, I, I ended up selling um, Rave and then got divorced. <laughs> um, and then I launched some other magazines. So I had some business magazines that were consumer magazines that we had in news agents. Um, one was called Work From Home, one was called Witch Franchise, which was for a, um, an organization. Um, we also had Insight, which was a spiritual kind of new age magazine, because that was already big at the time. So I went down that path for a while and that probably helped me get through my, <laughs> my crazy divorce. It was a bit mental for a year or so, um, you know, and did, and did all that, you know, I, I did my, you know, I'm, I'm a, um, I've, I've got my massage qualifications. I'm a Reiki master. I've done fire walking. I've done all that stuff. And, um, probably switched a little bit to more the editorial side. I had a business partner with that one and he was looking after more the sales and I got more interested in writing, which I hadn't done before. Um, it gave me, you know, I say to a lot of people when they say about your own business, I, I'd been offered a job with a big publishing company in Sydney and um, I knocked it back uh, and it, it probably would have set me up financially for, for life. But at that time, I was a single parent. Um, I had three young kids. Um, I had my own business and what it allowed me to do was have flexibility. So it wasn't so much, I'm sure a lot of people probably even listening to this can, can understand that where flexibility in my work was more important than the end dollar in a way. Yeah, you had to make enough money, obviously, um, but I wanted to- Why are you doing things all day with the kids? You could work or not. Exactly, exactly. And so that was my, and I, I'm very lucky in the, in the business that I have and the job that I do, where as long as I've got my laptop with me, I can do it anywhere, anytime. You know, I don't have big offices. All of my staff are all based either at home or in their own offices if they do other things. We live off of, um, I mean, it's funny because now Zoom and all this sort of stuff is is now second nature to people, but we've been doing that for a long time. It used to be just using Skype. Um, Dropbox is just that's what we live through so um, you know I guess in the old days instead of saving something to a USB and walking into another office and giving it somebody everything's just on Dropbox so everything's made quite easy um, but having said that it's I'm blessed because we can um, operate from wherever but still communicate with each other um, and so yeah the flexibility was a big thing for me you know to be able to um, you know, if there was a sports day on at school, then I could go to that. But then I'd put the kids to bed and then I'd still write some stories that night. So um, I did that for another few years and then I sold those. Um, and I was actually going to take some time off. I thought I'd take like maybe 12 months off because I'd been working like crazy. Um, and then the lady who I had done the haired magazine with, she asked me to go in 
and have a look at her business and just kind of give her a bit of a, an idea of what I would do with it. Sort of more of a, you know, when you're sometimes involved, you can't see the wood for the trees sort of thing. Um, did that and she then got sick. And so she kind of was out of action for a little while. So I sort of just, I was only supposed to be there for a week and I think I stayed there for nearly two years. <laughs> just helping, just, just consulting, running, but, but kind of running it. Um, and so with the running of that, I then obviously it was another kind of step back into the hair industry. Um, I was running the magazine, I was running the awards. We had a young team that we used to run. Um, and then things kind of happened there as sometimes they do where we needed to part the ways, um, which I did. And, um, just felt that I knew the industry then so well that I felt the one area that the hair industry was lacking was, was business knowledge. Yes. Um, you know, the magazines that were out were covering, you know, and I mean, I love it, the creative side and the fluffy side and it's all beautiful and they need that inspiration. But we used to see magazines come back um, through Australia Post which were closures of salons. And on average for the hair industry, which hasn't changed, there's about a 12% churn rate. So every year, around 12% of salons close. And, and yes, they quite often reopen under different names, but I just thought that was a phenomenal amount of, of business closures. And, and then started looking into that and seeing that the hair industry especially um, has one of the highest closure rates of any industry within the first 12 months. Wow, that um, and part of that is because it's different for beauty, which I'll mention in a minute. But with hair, it, you can re, you can set up a salon reasonably cheaply. Like you don't need massive equipment. I think a lot of people, you know, and because it's a, I guess it's like you know, if you've got other trades, you know, if you're a plumber or if you're a builder or whatever you know, you can become licensed, but before you can set up a business, you've got to do another 12 months and then you learn about that business. Whereas in hairdressing, you, you're qualified. It's like, oh, I can open a salon now. Um, that's right. And no, I don't think of all the people I've interviewed, and I say this all the time because they say, oh, I can't have, I can't come that day because I'm going to leave a, my apprentice in the salon and, and she's not qualified. And I think, Nobody's qualified. Like, it's yeah. really wrong, but it's yeah. very true, isn't it? And I've never seen when someone's come to me and said they're uh, qualified for five years ago, oh, that's good. I don't go, can you show me a piece of paper, please? No, yeah. I don't know that anybody does. I think when they're apprentices, you do because you've got to work out where they're up to at school, but they're qualified. Yeah, yeah. And I think as well, I mean, there, there was sometimes there's been a spike in it with international. So we did go through a phase a while ago where um, a lot of um, internationals were opening salons which would then help in assistance in terms of migration so that was like a bit of a spike then that kind of got changed and stopped and um, but we still see a lot that, that you know that close and and it's not necessarily through economic things or GFCs it's usually just through lack of management skills sadly um, so I thought okay well I've got all these incredible business writers that used to write for my business magazines and I know that we're not going to be like a you know a BRW or anything but but we could at least start to open the door to get people to start yeah. thinking about business and marketing and teams and, and all that kind of stuff um, so I pulled a lot of people together and um, I decided not to go for the hair dollar in advertising because that was already at that time then um, AHA was still around and Culture had launched then as well and so was InStyle. So we were kind of just, um, you know, advertising initially came from business service providers, you know, from insurances and all different kind of things. And the strategy was definitely there to eventually move over and, and I guess compete and also be the creative side. But initially it was business so that we could um you know show that we were specifically a business title um we did a lot with our lists to make sure that we got that to the salon owners um so that was 14 15 years ago when we launched um hair biz and then my plan originally which did then change was that we would have a um a, a group of business magazines so we launched hair biz first um then we launched pharmacy biz which didn't work. <laughs> um, and the reason that one didn't work is that it's very much a, a wholesale industry. Um, but it's one where there were a couple of magazines that were very well respected at the time. 
I, I must admit with that one, we probably didn't do our research well enough to see whether there was a gap and there probably wasn't so much a gap. So um, I've never been one to sort of, you know, just hang on to something for the sake of it. It wasn't working, so we, we stopped it. Um, we then launched um, Pet Biz, and that was actually quite successful. Strangely enough, because the pet industry is very similar to the hair industry. You've got your professional brands that are sold through kind of vets and animal hospitals and things. And then you've got your supermarket brands. Um, again, the problem with the pet industry was um, it's also run by wholesalers. But unlike in this industry where with hair, the hair product companies will support you and advertise and then you go buy it from wherever. In the pet industry, they don't. They just expect the wholesalers to do it. And I think we got Royal Cannon and a few other big ones. But, um, you know, and it's funny because I think we did it for 12 months and even we just couldn't get the advertising dollars. And, and even though we, um, I think it was like five years later, we were still getting people ringing saying, oh, do you still have that pet magazine? Oh, really? <laughs> so, um, so then I sort of thought, you know what? We, we know hair. Through hair, we kind of had a bit of a crossover with beauty. Um, I looked at beauty and I felt again, there was really only, there was one magazine, which was professional beauty at the time. And there was about three or four other small ones, but they were all kind of run from, um, associations. They were a little bit incestuous and I was like, Oh, I don't think they're doing the right thing. So, so we, we, I did research that for about four or five months and then we decided to launch beauty biz, um, in the alternate months. And again, that was a, a financial strategy. Um, hair biz was six times a year. By having beauty biz six times a year, it meant that it was like as if we had one magazine every month. Um, because otherwise you, you're in a situation where you have you know, 12 months of costs, but only six months of income, and that doesn't work. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, and then following beauty, uh, our next one, which was I think about nine years ago, was barbershop because obviously um, we kind of came in on that just before the big men's kind of thing happened. I didn't realise it was that long ago, nine years ago. I know. I was surprised because we, we um, every time I look at the dates, I was like, God, that was nine years ago and that was probably two, three years before the boom sort of hit. <laughs> so we'd already started establishing, I guess, um, what we were doing with, with barber. Um, and then we, with beauty, um, beauty was probably a bit different to hair because even though we still get returns, the churn rate on the beauty industry is probably closer to six to 7%. So it's almost half of, um, even though it's a smaller industry, um, on percentage wise. And I think the only reason for that is, is that nowadays, especially even more so than 12, 13 years ago, you do need quite a bit of money to set up a good beauty salon for the equipment um you know the so i think people tend to be a bit older a little bit wiser they've got a bit more money behind them um, you're often partnered with somebody who's not in the space you know i often see yeah. there's a beauty therapist or something and then her husband's an accountant or you know there seems to be yeah. often they're run by doctors as well behind the scenes and it, it is yeah. a is more multi-layered and that's because they need the 300,000. Know? Yeah. I think as well, just even from a qualification point of view, because they're, um, it, it's not a, an apprentice certification, it's more of a diploma and that also can include some business knowledge as well. Yeah. I think that, you know, I mean, yeah, you can still get people that just do a real basic quick, quick, sharp sort of short course, but, um, Generally, if you've got to go and, you know, lease some equipment that's going to be worth over $100,000, you need to know what you're doing. So, Or you've got to get the money from someone who will want to know what you're doing. Yes, exactly. Whether that's the bank or your uncle or a relative or someone that yeah. you need the 150 again for. Yeah, yeah. You can open up a business with 30000 if it's a hair salon. Yeah, exactly. So I think because of that, you don't see the, the closures as much. And so we'd started to get involved with that side of things. Um, I then kind of moved from pretty much doing most a lot of it myself. I had a sales um, person, but then I decided to pull in editors that were very specialised in their areas. Um, I was a bit out of my league with beauty, so I knew that I needed somebody that was a beauty therapist that, that knew what to write about. Um, same with, with hair and now also with barber. Um, and I guess as well then, I suppose what happened then was we were getting a lot of people approaching us about the beauty awards. There were no national awards in the beauty industry. Oh, 
Um, they didn't exist. There was no competition. The only ones that were around were a couple of associations had some. Yeah. And when I decided to do it, um, I actually went to an awards. It was for, I won't mention who it is, but it was a, it was a, an association one. And <laughs> I went into it and just thought, oh my God, <laughs> we need to have some decent awards. Um, so I kind of looked at it and thought, I spoke to Reed because Reed obviously at that time had her expo awards and I'd been speaking to them for a couple of years and they kept saying that they were going to do it and they just weren't doing it. And so I sort of said to them, well, I'm going to give it a go. And they were like, okay, we'll just support you. And I said, if I do this, then I want to hold it on the last night of Beauty Expo, which they were fine with. We've always had a good relationship and not a competitive one, I guess. Um, so I did all my budgets and I thought, okay, I didn't want a, 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 like one sponsor. I wanted it to be a collective industry event and um, said to all the people that wanted me to do it, which were predominantly the beauty therapists and the salon owners, someone's got to help pay for it. So I set up a kind of sponsorship package and um, went to all these companies at Beauty Expo, which would have been now nine, nearly 10 years ago and said, this is what we're going to do. And I, I kind of gave myself a challenge. I thought if we got the sponsorship by the end of the Beauty Expo weekend, I'd go ahead with it. And if not, to be honest, thinking it wouldn't happen because then oh, wow. I wouldn't have to do it. Wow. And, then, um, <laughs> and then by the end of the weekend, we had every single category locked in. So, oh, exactly. um, now I've got to do it. <laughs> yes. So I then literally locked myself away for about a month and downloaded every single beauty award internationally some were in different languages which i translated i, I literally looked at everything pulled in a bit of a panel of people to help me as well once i'd written it so i wrote um all the criteria all the categories everything that we needed to do worked out how we could do that and when we launched it um we launched it with hard copy so people um entered and had to send in their hard copy submission um we ran it that way for about three years until it got to the point where it got so big that we just physically couldn't do it anymore we were literally packing sort of seven or eight suitcases to go to three states to do um judging in three states we were having to get hotels for three days because it was just getting for people to read um i mean you're a judge so you know how much you have to read online but if you imagine that in hard copy and having to get through it in a day sitting around a board table if you had a headache that day oh my god yeah and also just just the thought of you know, time. you know, it's a lot of time now and I can sit in my jammies and do it on the couch. Whereas if I had to yeah. fly there, yeah. it's pretty expensive, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So we did it in three states. So we did it in um, Brisbane, Sydney and um, Melbourne. And that allowed us to have sort of judges from all over the place all come to their state. Um, it used to give me anxiety when I used to get on the plane because it's sort of that question of do you courier them or do you fly with them? or Because if we lost them... Wow. I mean, what do you do? Only one copy of them. I know, exactly. So, um, and, and I, felt, I, I felt as well that um, I wanted to change it and I wanted to put it online because also um, the content of what's in an award submission has to be the most important thing, not necessarily the way in which it is presented. So sometimes we would get salons that would spend an absolute fortune on presenting their submission nice. in a book with fur and goodies and all sorts of different things. And then you get somebody else that would just, you know, put stuff just in on, on paper and photocopy it and put it into an envelope. And even though they still need to learn something because the way that you present your business anytime, I think has to be a reflection of your business. Sometimes it was more about the education of those people of, Yes. how to enter awards because they never had before yeah. so we felt that by doing it online and having the same questions and the same things that everyone had to upload um it gave maybe a little bit more of a level playing playing field um didn't necessarily mean that the people that spent thousands on people that knew how to play the awards game could put stuff together um but we also spent a lot of time on education on showing people what to do how to do it um even, you know, in the last few years, I've done quite a bit in trying to get people to understand 
what the judge is like, um, how to present something online so it's easy on the eye and all those kind of things. So it has been a bit of a, an education sort of thing. So we, we started off with um, the Beauty Awards. We, our first one, I think, was at Dockside in Darling Harbour, which was a small room. It was, I think we only had about 250, 300 people there. Um, now we've built to, we have it at the Star um, in Sydney. I think there's usually about 650, 700. Like it's massive wow. now compared so to what we, yeah, to compare. And it really is the, it sounds like a cliche, but it is the Oscars of the, the beauty industry. It's a night of nights. I don't know where I was for the last part of my life, but I've only discovered them since I started coaching and getting into yeah. that place in a, in a yeah. national way. When I was just in Victoria, I didn't really, I don't know, I didn't sort of know. And then you asked me to judge. And then when I went there, I was like the Brownlow middle count. I was like, oh, and the dresses, and I loved it. It was so, yeah, very exciting. And I think as well, and it's the same as the hair, because a couple of years after the Beauty Awards, when we launched the hair ones, there were already two um, hair, hair awards, creative ones, but again, nobody was doing business. Yes. So I felt there was a lot of business um, hair salons that, some were owned not by hairdressers that were really good business people. Sometimes the big names that do the beautiful creative stuff are not always the winners of what's doing well in business. Oh, and I wanted to give the, the people that, you know, the salons that um, didn't want to spend a lot of money on photo shoots and didn't want to be in that arena, but still wanted to be able to have, I think what, what I think is a really important accolade to be able to strive for. So um it was quite easy to move it across because most a lot of the categories are quite similar when it comes to salon business and design and customer care and marketing and all that kind of stuff so we moved across to do the the hair ones and and i think with both what i love about them is that even on the night um it, it's not an ego thing it's not a um it, it's like everyone is celebrating together because it's about business so if business is going well Everyone's kind of happy. Um, yes, there's so many people that you you come across, or I know, that you don't ever see them. And then you see them all in the one room. You're know? like a grandma at a wedding giving everyone a kiss. It's so yeah, it is. It's good. I mean, the seating, it, I mean, I delegate now a lot and I've stepped back a fair bit, but um, the seating plan is probably the one thing I can't delegate. I, I have to look after that one. And it's like planning the worst big Greek wedding you can ever imagine <laughs> because I've got it. People don't want to sit next to somebody or? Like, um, it's a bit of a mixture. It's kind of um, knowing, knowing what salons are with what companies. So knowing that they're wow. with the right areas and people. So I don't put a different company on with them, you know, because then the other company might get annoyed. And then there's people that, you know, there's people that do get on and people that don't always get on. So it's working out where they can all go, making sure that I've got my winner's, kind of dotted around the room so they're not all up the front so we can have that lovely big walk from the back um wow so much to think about yeah, there's a and then you know somebody that rings on the last week and says oh can i put an extra two people on my table <laughs> so, so no you cannot yeah <laughs> when, when i first went and i went on my own the first time and i remember you coming back and saying where do you want to sit and i thought oh, on a chair like i <laughs> And yeah, every time the, I've gone, I've never cared where I sat and I've always made a friend. You know, yes. one, night, one time I sat with Selena and now we're besties. Yeah, yeah. Right. So I, I couldn't give a rat. But that's probably me because I don't, I don't, you know, I, I know cross the road for anybody. If we have a disagreement, I'll have it out with you and then we'll be fine again. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But, but I guess not everyone's. I remember, you know, even doing my own wedding and nobody wants to sit on table eight near the toilet. And I think, well, someone <laughs> Table. Like, what's the problem? You want to all be yeah. at the bridal table? Go away. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a, you it's a pull them out of a barrel. Just you know, do it like a chicken raffle. Chicken one. Yeah, it's a fun. It's a fun one. Um, and so we were going to launch our Barber Awards this year, but we've postponed that till next year. Um, obviously the hair and the beauty ones we've had to postpone till later in the year, um, which has all been a bit difficult. But we'll we'll hopefully get there in the end. Um, we have a, a young uh, competition called Hot Shots, which is for young hairdressers. And then we also launched Beauty Squad this year for the, for the beauty ones as well. So, um, so yeah, it's kind of, you know. Um, all come together. What, what's next though? We're happy to sit on that for a bit now. Now you're a brand new grandmother. How well, I was, I was going to until such time that um, obviously developments have happened with um, Hair Expo, which is now... Um, 
cancelled and also the awards. So we've made some announcements already saying that we will um, move into that space, <laughs> which, which we will be, but um, there's still more announcements to come with that. We're looking at, um, we're talking to quite a few people at the moment for possible partnership with um, some of it and um, the award, but the awards are something that we will look at continuing. So um, we're about to announce actually today, or if not Monday, the new branding of all of that, which will allow us to, to move across into the creative um, arena as well as um, the business arena. Um, and so... So Hair um, Expo is finished. There won't be a Hair Expo. Um, there won't be a Hair Expo owned by Reed Exhibitions, but um, go ahead. Queen's, Queen's Birthday Weekend will still be something, um, but we're yet to announce kind of what it's going to be and who will be involved. Um, we, we've been talking to Reed for quite some time, um, even from last year, about a few things that we were looking at doing with them, and then things changed, I think, and then they... Um, I mean, they've just announced that they're not doing Beauty Expo today as well. So oh, wow. um, we'd already decided to move ours anyway to December from October, mainly because I just felt with all the Victorian salons, they don't come out of lockdown until mid-September. And then to plan to try and do an event two weeks later when I don't know what, what's going to be going on, I just felt it was safer to do something later so that we can hopefully deliver what everybody wants, which is a really good event. Um, and look, we're not, we haven't got our heads in the sand. If something happens that will mean that we have to change that, then we'll do it. But at this stage, you know, you've got to still kind of keep going as if everything's going to be normal, even though we know it's not. And if you don't, you just sort of give up. So um, I think it's important that we still keep the momentum going. At the end of the day, it means that the finalists get to be finalists for longer, which is good for people for, for promotion and marketing and stuff. That's how you can um, be finalists and not a third place for yeah, longer. So that's yeah, good. Yeah. Yeah. But no, I'm still, I'm sort of just... Um, I don't know. I'm, I think lots of people in this situation, I think stepping back and being a bit quiet has not been a bad thing. I think it's allowed a lot of us to look at our businesses and look at things that we do. Um, I mean, yeah, I'm a new grandmum for the first time. So okay. that's, all I'm, that's all I'm interested in at the moment. Um, and that's been really good because when things have been really busy with these all these new developments, when things have got a bit overwhelming, I've just kind of got in the car and then gone and just cuddled and fed a baby and then I feel fine again. Oh, so nice. Um, How old is the baby? About four weeks old? Yes, four weeks old. So um, I did go and spend time with Kel the other day because Kelly, my daughter, she, she does all my graphic design. So I went and kind of held the baby for two or three days while she still did the magazine because she can't have maternity leave because I didn't, so she doesn't need to have it. <laughs> so um, <laughs> Yeah. Um, so that's worked out really well. Um, her and her partner um, own a gin bar and restaurant in Brisbane, so she that keeps them sort of busy too. And I also really enjoy, like my sons, I've got twin boys, they're in business together as well. Um, they've got a pool building business. So I help them out um, with their business side of the business. So I'm an expert now on WHS and swims and oh. that rubbish. So um, we do tenders and things. So I help them out and I enjoy that too. Um, so yeah, I just, you know, Moving on. I've got a crazy dog. I look after my daughter's cat, which is asleep on the bed at the moment. Um, and yeah, life life on the Gold Coast at the moment is pretty pretty okay. Um, but yeah, I'm desperate to get on a plane and go somewhere. Um, probably not as much as I used to because I have looked at my budgets and looked at how much I used to spend on that, and I've just been a bit blown away by that. So I think that will probably change, and I may not need to do that as much. Um, a lot of the businesses I deal with are now quite happy to just do a face to face on a, a computer. So. And what would you say, what have you, what's the good out of COVID or what have you learned out of COVID, do you think? Um, I, think it's, I think it's brought the best out of people and the worst. <laughs> yes. Um, I think that people have shown their true colours and that can be either in a good way or a bad way. Um, I think that, you know, it, it's maybe taught us to be a little bit more patient and hopefully to be a bit kind because I've, I've noticed, um, you know, some of my friends and colleagues and people I work with, even especially in Victoria at the moment, I can tell that when I'm talking to them, as time goes on, they're getting a bit stir crazy and a bit, you know, and, and I think that, you know, it's important for us to reach out to them for that. Um, 
you know, I, I, quiet time for me has always been really important. And I think I did learn that when I went on my little kind of spiritual thing. I mean, I, I meditate, I do yoga. I, I need that quiet time. Um, spending a weekend on my own is actually quite nice. I don't need to communicate. I think for those of us who communicate as, as, a, um, as a job, you know, sometimes you get to the point where you're sick of your own voice, let alone somebody else's. So I think quiet time is actually quite nice. I mean, I when COVID hit, I was in Bali and came back and had to do two weeks isolation. Luckily, my friend was with me, so she came back to stay with me. I kicked one the son that lives with me out so we could just be here. So, you know, we went for walks and we started seeing things that we hadn't ever noticed before. And, um, you know, the family used to come around after that every weekend and, um, you know, getting my lot all together is sometimes quite hard. But when we were almost forced to, um, everyone came every weekend. We used to do theme nights. We used to do special meals from different countries. And and that's actually continued. Um, you know, Kelly and her partner and the baby come down pretty much every Sunday till Tuesday because they've got used to coming here for a few days and they like coming here to the coast. It's like a little bit of a getaway. And um, I think the fam, I mean, I might not be speaking for everybody because some people might be just thinking their families are driving them nuts. But for those <laughs> of us that don't have them living with us, yeah, I think nice. it's been quite nice to, you know, um, I think just maybe stop. I mean, this this whole year has been all about pause and stop. And um, I, I do think that, you know, when things were locked down before, I don't know that the panic was there as much this time in Victoria. Because it's like, well, we've done it before. We can get through it. Um, you know, when it comes to business in the hair and beauty industry, as much as the fact I, I totally accept that some people are struggling, um, financially, the government's done loads for us compared to a lot of other countries and I mean at some point that's going to run out but at the moment you know there's a lot of salons that I talk to that are way more cashed up than they've ever been before Absolutely. Um, and Absolutely. and are having to look at different things and I mean I think there's you know we've run some stories on on how salons have had to especially in the beauty industry because they were closed for longer than hair how they had to reinvent and how they had to look at what they could do with retail and you know um ones that have done better this year than they did last year in some things because they've never actually spent that much time doing it. So I think, I think a lot of people have actually done things where they've looked at their businesses and gone, wow, that's an area that we've never really realized is profitable before. Um, you know, and I don't, obviously being close to six weeks suddenly is, is not good. Um, but I just think it's like anything in life is if you're presented with something, um, it's how you react to it. Um, you know, I've got some that are just in major panic that I speak to. And then I've got others that are, I was talking to a, a head salon owner, actually he's one of three, they own three salons and there's three of them together. Um, and he sent me a, um, an article that he wanted to run and just said, can you put this out? It might help other people of all the stuff that they're doing for the six weeks for their teams and literally kind of almost a bullet point list of some really great ideas of what they're doing and, and how they're being positive and, and using the time. And I mean, it's just, it's a choice, isn't it? Really? I think like anything, um, I, you know, my motto is always to choose happiness, which sounds a bit airy fairy, but it's not, you do get to choose. You do. I, I feel the same. I think, yeah, there's some things I don't like and I'm, because I'm struggling um, helping my son get better with mental health you know that's yeah. been tricky because you yeah. can't take him anywhere and do anything nice you know yeah so that, yeah. that's been tricky and I feel for the people in that situation and there's worse but I also think I love my little house you know and I'm yeah. cooking and reignited with cooking again and yeah you know, all bad and I've, cho I've chosen to see the good too you know yeah and it's hard because that's always that's always a miracle. We get excited down here when the sun comes out. We go, look at this day. It doesn't matter. It's still only sixteen yeah, degrees. And I know it's hard because I've spoken to a few people that have sort of said, "Oh, you know, we look at you lot up there, and you know, because I'm on the Gold Coast, so it's sort of you know, you're out, you know, you're walking on the beach, or you're going for dinner. Or it's like you know, other than the borders being closed, it, it, there's not much different now. Like we're kind of almost back to normal. You know, there are restrictions in terms of numbers." Um, but you can go out to lunch and you can go out to dinner and yeah, you've got to sign all your stuff off. You know, the cinemas are open again. Like it's all that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, so I'm mindful of, of 
people's kind of mental health when they see us all doing all that. But at the same time, um, I think it's just about reaching out and being kind and seeing what everybody else is doing. I mean, I'm, you know, I, I go, I go over to the UK every year. Um, my family's all over there. Um, I, I usually try and combine it with a, um, the hair show that we go to and I take a, a team of young hairdressers that we always go over there with them and we get them to do all these different things. And, um, obviously I can't do that, but, um, that's not great for me. I mean, my, you know, I've got, um, parents I've got you know so sort of you get to the point of I made a commitment that I would go to see them every year when it got to the stage where they couldn't sort of really come to me um and that will be a year that I can't do that and I know that's not as bad as people that have got you know parents in you know hospitals or aged care homes or whatever um one of my best friend just rang me today actually to say that her mum's just gone into hospital today with something and she can't go she can't see her she doesn't know what's going on um that's the stuff that I think is really tough. Um, and, and I think it might be amplified in a way. I mean, I think that emotions are definitely heightened at the moment. I think we have to be really careful about what we say and, you know, sometimes to maybe step back from <laughs> the, the keyboard warrior social media thing. I think just take a breath, um, think about what you're doing and what you're saying. Um, because I think all of our emotions are heightened. Um, in some ways good and in some ways maybe not so good so um yeah i think it's just a bit of a um you know a breathe a little bit slower i think well, thank you for today there's there's a lot of story there well done all right that's okay i told you i could talk underwater <laughs> i don't think that's a fault i think it's a good thing <laughs> yeah that's probably why i have my weekends and i say nothing to anybody and don't invite anybody around <laughs> used your 3,000 a day quota and you're out of words. So. Is that it? Is that Thank how you many you very much, Linda. Thank you for your time today. More than welcome. More than welcome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Salon Conversations. I enjoy bringing them to you. So I hope that you enjoy them and that you will share them with other people in the industry that you think might enjoy them. If you'd like to get in touch with me, there are show notes at the end of every episode or you can find me on socials, Lisa Conway-Zing or you can go to my website, The Zing Project. I look forward to hearing from you soon. Have a great day.